You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, M.D., Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Commodore Obvious, Pablo, Toves, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Today we're going to continue our story of the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. Now I would understand if you were asking yourself exactly why we're talking about this ship from the 1640s. Why are we doing it now? Aren't we talking about the 1690s and the Nine Years' War and New England? Well, yes, yes we are. This is episode 175, The Vocabulary of Despair. When we left off last time, the 1641 treasure fleet had just departed Havana. They did so on the 20th of September, a full month after the latest acceptable date to do so. The Concepcion, formerly the flagship of the fleet but downgraded to vice-admiral and replaced as flagship by the San Pedro, well, she was in poor shape. The crew discovered a pretty serious leak in her hull only a few days earlier, but they patched that up back in Havana. Perhaps, though, most concerning of all was the captain of the Concepcion. Juan de Villavicencio was not a seafaring man. He was a financial expert. I characterized him as a banker. And I don't mean to disparage his character, not on that basis at least. I'm sure he was a nice guy in everyday life, though, you know, Loved his kids, pet his dogs, that kind of thing. And the presence of financial experts on board was important in a treasure fleet. There were a lot of them. But it's foolish to put them in the chain of command. You know, I'm worried that I've given away the game too early here. Maybe I should have built up some suspense. Let me backtrack a bit. Everything's fine, guys. There's nothing to worry about. This voyage is going to go all by the numbers. Don't worry about the impending doom of the ship or the crew or the one and a half million pesos and hard silver on board. Smooth sailing from here on out. The weather turned bad almost immediately. 
The fleet set a breakneck pace out of Havana, even making it through the dangerous Straits of Florida. That hurdle overcome, the San Pedro set a heading north, and the fleet leaned in to their race against the inclement weather. I told you last time about the ancient wisdom, quote-unquote, that decreed one should not depart from Havana across the Atlantic any later than the 20th of August. That phrase, ancient wisdom, is according to Peter Earle. Now, he doesn't say exactly what ancient wisdom he means, but you could take your pick. You could go back to Egypt, or Greece, or Phoenicia, or Mesopotamia, China, India. All of the great empires of old knew that there were bad times to set sail. The Mayans and the Aztecs knew all about hurricane season in that part of the world at that time. One could hardly call the Spanish in America ancient in 1641, but they knew all about this stuff as well. Today, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association studies those trends in weather, and they tell us officially that the most dangerous time of year for North American hurricanes, especially in the Caribbean, is from mid-August to mid-October. The crew of the Concepcion knew they were in a bad spot. The admiral of the fleet, Juan de Campos, he pushed his ships hard immediately after leaving Havana to get to safety as soon as possible. And had they not been tethered to the Concepcion, they might have made it. But by dawn on the seventh day, it was clear they weren't going to make it. The captain of the San Pedro ordered them to make for San Augustine, but it was already too late. The wind rose and pulled the fleet away from Florida and from safety. They were hauled out to sea. Over the following days, the crews took all necessary precautions. They battened the hatches, they drew up the sails, they checked that the cargo was securely fastened. They did everything they could, but it still wasn't going to be enough. The pilot of the San Pedro would write later of the night of the 27th, quote, By nightfall, the weather was becoming increasingly violent, and by midnight, it was an all-out storm. End quote. Peter Earle writes that, quote, Huge waves struck the great mountain of wood in the darkness, and already many of the older sailors were saying that they had never experienced such a savage storm. But there was much worse to come. End quote. When dawn arrived, such as it was in the driving rain, La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción made a fatal error. She set a new head and laid the starboard side of the ship bare to a rogue wave. Earl tells us that the pilot was exhausted from a night of desperately trying to keep the ship afloat. Others tell us that the pilot may have been injured, and their captain, remember that banker, took the helm. Either way, that freak wave towered fifty feet over the ship and crashed over the deck. It knocked four men into the churning waves, two life rafts ripped free from the boat, and this is key, they took a good piece of the hull with them. Over the next quarter of an hour, cargo and supplies flowed out of this so recently created hull. Water flowed in, and the ship began to list dangerously to one side, all the while being tossed around. Finally, painfully, they managed to right the Concepcion. They lost two more men in the process, but it looked like they might make it. But we all know, of course, they're not going to. You know the saying, we can do the work well, we can do it cheap, or we can do it fast. You get to pick two. 
The shipwrights back in Havana, when they were repairing that damage done to the hull, they chose to do it fast and cheap. The patches that they put into those large holes in the ship's aft ripped open. The new, sturdy wood that they had put in was just sucked away, and ocean water began filling the hold. If we're counting, and we are, that is two large breaches to the hull in a savage storm. After yet another sleepless night of fighting to stay afloat, dawn of the 29th of September arrived, St. Michael's Day. The bedraggled crew of the Concepcion searched the horizon for any sign of any other ships that might be able to give them aid. The San Pedro was nowhere to be seen. The gunboats, the cargo ships, there was no one else in sight. This put even more pressure on the water currently filling their holds. They worked and they worked throughout the morning trying to get the ship in good working order, and the rain did let up a bit. And then... Come mid-morning, the San Pedro came rushing up from the south, undamaged and followed by most of the fleet. The Concepcion attempted to join them. They followed her, but she had taken on too much water, too much damage. They just couldn't move fast enough. Within an hour, the rest of the fleet was barely visible. The crew, whenever they could turn their eyes away from their work, were staring southward. The sky was growing dark. And then another fleet emerged from the gloom. Large, well-armed ships. It was the Armada de Barlavento, the windward fleet, some of the greatest ships in the West Indies. They, too, were undamaged and moving fast. They passed right on by the Concepcion, never even slowing down. Now, I don't want to give the impression that these ships were callous. They couldn't stop to help the Concepcion. If they attempted, in this growing storm, to trim their sail or, God forbid, to drop anchor, they would have damaged their own ships, and likely they would have been dead in the water. They would have been in as bad or worse a position than the Concepcion. There was no slowing down, there was certainly no stopping, and absolutely no putting boats into the water. Despite the fact that they were maybe just several yards away from the Concepcion at some point, that ship was on her own. By one o'clock, the crew of the ship noted that there were seven feet of water in the hold. An hour later, it had raised to ten. The crew prayed for a sign, and that sign arrived around dusk of the twenty-ninth. A wave rose up before the foredeck. It crashed over the ship, and it pulled the nose of the Concepcion down below the water. When she finally pulled her nose up, the figurehead that carving of the Virgin Mary, the ship's patron saint, had been ripped away. The officers of the fleet met to discuss their options. They had to make landfall. No one argued that point, but where was the best place? There were three choices available to them. The closest was the Bahamas, just to the southeast. A bit farther southeast was Hispaniola, Santo Domingo, and finally, even farther to the east, was Puerto Rico. The problem they encountered here were pirates. Their many barrels of gunpowder had broken free on the Concepcion. They were waterlogged and useless, floating around in the hold. Wherever they landed, they would be defenseless, and right then, dangerous rogues were lying in wait around every corner. 
The Bahamas was home to a growing group of Dutch corsairs who would more than likely sink the ship, kill any crewmen that survived, and pick their bones clean. The coast of Hispaniola, as they had experienced only a year or so before, was similarly infested. Puerto Rico was the only location relatively free of a pirate menace, but it was also the farthest away. In the end, the officers decided to put their fate in the hands of God. Pirates would certainly kill them all, but they just might make it to Puerto Rico. The decision gave the crew a, a renewed energy, a, a new purpose. They cut the mast down, they threw their heaviest cargo overboard, including most of their guns, and they did what they could to patch the hull and drain the holds. It was tough going, but within a few days things began to look promising. The weather had more or less cleared up, it looked like they just might be delivered, they might find salvation. But the Concepcion was traveling southeast, past the Bahamas and that little Dutch outpost that was getting her sea legs at this time, called Nassau. But none of these Spaniards were familiar with this bit of sailing. Many a mariner had passed by the Bahamas up to the north on their way home, but these were unfamiliar waters to this crew. A rogue wind, what the Spanish called a rogue wind at least, took the Spanish by surprise. That powerful gale blew them well off course, to the east, directly into the Bahamas. A sailor with more experience in the region would have known to expect that sort of thing at that time of year. The pirates out of Nassau, at least, never had much trouble with it. The crew of the Concepcion drew up sails as quickly as possible. They diminished their speed, which was the goal, but they were still moving. The pilot of the Concepcion ordered soundings dropped in regular intervals, trying to navigate their way back to the open ocean. But despite that, despite the precautions he was taking, shortly after night fell that day, the crew's worst fear came to pass. They heard a terrible grating sound, and the ship lurched and threw men and tackle all about the deck. They'd hit land. Now, a sandbar would have been bad enough, but this was not a sandbar. This was a reef, and they were still moving, which made it worse still. Guian ordered the anchor dropped to stop their momentum as fast as possible, but thanks to all the damage that had been sustained over the past few days, that operation took well over half an hour. All the while, the reef was dragging at the hull and ripping it further and further open. When the anchor finally hit the water, the Concepcion blessedly stopped moving. However, she was stuck on that reef. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, the crew did their best to free her over the next couple of days, but they had some disadvantages going in. First of all, the reason that it took so long to drop the anchor, the capstan was broken, beyond all hope of repair. A capstan is one of those big, cylindrical devices with poles sticking out of it that sailors can push around in a circle. That helps them to winch up an anchor or do really any other heavy lifting or to get their ship free from a reef. A crewman wrote, and when he says hawsers, he means those really, really thick ropes. Quote, The warps, capstan hawsers, and other fittings which these ships are supposed to carry for this sort of situation took away our little luck, for they were not aboard. The anchors and tow cables had been taken overboard by the storm. End quote. Had the ship been properly outfitted, they might have been able to pull the ship free of the reef and repair her and sail on to Santo Domingo. But she was not properly outfitted. Most problematic, though, was their lack of ship's boats. They had lost all but one boat in the storm. Those boats certainly would have helped them free the Concepcion, or at the very least, given them a lifeline to freedom, a way out. Instead, every time they tried to pull the ship free, their ropes inevitably caught on the coral, frayed, and broke. They just didn't have the leverage to get the ship moving. They had one last-ditch option, though. They let out a full sail in hopes that a wind might come along and push them in the opposite direction. However, that same crewman said, quote, God did not find sufficient merit in us to grant us a miracle, so we could not free the ship. End quote. They had one bit of luck, though. The ship had run aground. It's not a great bit of luck, but it's better than being lost in the open ocean. That's why they were still alive. But we shouldn't picture a leisurely jaunt over sandy bottoms. This was a reef. That means that the water was too deep to wade in and filled with very sharp coral. There was lush fauna swimming in and around all the coral, and there were the requisite predators of that fauna. We're talking sharks here. Small ones, not great whites, but sharks nonetheless. Peter Earle tells us of their days after running aground, quote, The documents which describe the last few days in the life of the Concepcion are surprisingly silent on the reactions of the passengers or the crew to the desperate situation in which they found themselves. Perhaps the authors had exhausted the vocabulary of despair in describing the horrors of the hurricane. Still, it takes little imagination to envisage the mood of people who had already endured so much and now found themselves stranded in a sinking ship on a coral reef in the middle of nowhere. End quote. I have a lot of people I look up to, 
in this odd little line of work I've found. A lot of podcasters, Dan Carlin obviously is a big one, but a lot of authors too. Colin Woodard, the author of The Republic of Pirates, is the reason I got so interested in the real history of piracy in the first place. Marcus Redeker, another phenomenal pirate historian, has a class-conscious mind that I enjoy, but Peter Earle, there's something about the way he writes. He has a way of selling a story that really just gives you a punch in the gut. All that said, though, it does take a lot for me to imagine that situation. I've never been there. I mean, I've been lost in the woods before. There was the danger of bears. There were telltale signs of a cougar lurking about. There was the smell of marked territory and a few claw marks. I found a footprint. At the time, I may or may not have been in an intoxicated state. It was scary. But I knew that I walked in there and I could walk out. I knew to find water and follow it if things got dire enough. Mentally, I could deal with that situation. I don't know if I could deal with the situation of the people of the Concepcion. Captain Via Vicencio ordered the lone boat to scout out any possible escape routes that they might find. He told the people that as soon as they got La Concepcion free, they wouldn't, they had to have a way out of there. To me, this smacks of a bit of theater. It was a show of action, of doing something to give everyone some hope. But it looks like, in secret, he may have ordered the people on that boat to find any land that had fresh water and maybe some food. They had to have some kind of hope beyond the reef and the sharks. While that ship was off scouting, the captain finally, officially, made the decision that every modern scholar considers to have been the right one. Really, it was his only decision, but in his lifetime, he would take some heat for it. The captain took readings of the ship's coordinates, found latitude and longitude, wrote them down, and then he ordered that the Concepcion's upper decks be dismantled to build rafts. That was a job for the crew. The passengers were told to pull up all of the provisions and tackle that they were able to get to, anything that might help them survive on the open ocean. And then everyone began to prepare to leave. Now, there were those who wanted to pull up the silver as well. Not to take it with them, nobody thought that was a possibility, but, you know, to make it easier to find. But the pilot brought up a few convincing arguments. If they removed all of the silver from the hold, which was currently under the waterline, and then they put it on deck, the ship might be free to list, to move from her current location, especially in inclement weather. If that happened, they would lose the location of the ship and 1.5 million pesos. If, in that situation, the ship wound up breaking up as it was likely to do, that silver could be lost anywhere. Even if the Concepcion stayed in place, if they had a giant pile of silver on the deck of their wrecked ship, that would certainly attract prying eyes. If, on the other hand, they left the silver in place, underwater, behind a firmly locked door and inside stout chests, no one but a dedicated reclamation team was likely to find it or pull it up. The silver stayed. For two days, the crew and passengers worked on their rafts. And on the third day, the ship's boat reappeared with news that there was no good escape route for the Concepcion, but they had, in fact, found some land. That was good news. It 
boosted morale for everyone. It left the people of the Concepcion in good spirits. For the first time since the day after the storm, they finally had an ounce of hope. That night, all hell broke loose. A terrible thunderstorm arrived with shocking speed. It crashed down on the Spaniards and forced the ship to lurch this way and that for hours. Then there was a horrific shift that shook the deck and plunged the Concepcion deeper into the water, all the way up to the quarterdeck. People were standing on what was essentially a 45-degree angle, in the driving rain, trying to hold on for dear life. Now, well, look, we in the modern world are generally less superstitious than our forebears were. Just a little stitious, as the poet said. Most of us don't believe that God takes an active role in the minutiae of everyday life. Now, some of us still do, and that's fine. But even the faithful among us don't live lives as permeated by religion as those in early modern Spain. I don't intend any offense here, but we all kind of know this to be true. We don't live in a theocratic monarchy, right? Still, though, after everything that the Concepcion had been through, I suspect that even the least faithful people in the modern world would see this storm just when things had begun to look up and wonder what they had done to anger God. And we can look back from now from afar in safety and conclude that, you know, it was storm season. This is a dangerous part of the world. What were they to expect? But what if you were there? I mean, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? These people who were anything but atheists, well, they assumed that God had abandoned them, and they freaked out. Civilians on board started grabbing up supplies and just jumped overboard. They started to swim out to the rafts and hopefully the boat, but as they were doing so, the coral reefs cut their feet and their legs. The sharks, who had been circling for the past few days, smelled blood in the water. The people still on board, going mad with fear, began to see their compatriots start to jerk about as the sharks tore pieces out of them. Remember, these weren't big sharks. A great white might kill you quickly, but these would just tear little mouthfuls out of your flesh. Naturally, some of the people on board wanted to go help the people in the water, but the crew, Royal Navy sailors, remember, had to hold them back from jumping overboard. It started to turn rough. It started to turn violent, the crew had to form a line of pikemen to hold the people back. The passengers still on board, rain, sheets of rain falling into their face, staring down this line of steel, had to listen to this drum roll of thunder and the screams and thunder and the screams it was driving them insane. Those people rushed the pikes. At this point, the captain, hearing all this tumult, rushed onto the upper deck and walked into a scene of horror. There were people bleeding on the deck. There were people impaled on pikes. There were people hanging limp over the rail. The soldiers, standing there holding firm, were covered in the blood of their passengers. He noted the mix of terror and savagery that he saw in their eyes. All the while, the thunderstorm was growing in intensity, and those unlucky enough to be in the water were being slowly eaten alive. The captain, though, does not remember what happened next. In his testimony, later on, the next thing the captain remembers is waking up, come dawn, floating on a piece of wood out on the reef. Somehow, 
either by being attacked or perhaps just an act of bad luck, he had been knocked overboard and unconscious. Understandably, the captain was furious. He paddled his way back to his quickly sinking ship and began to climb aboard. The people on board were surprised to see the captain, bloody and bruised and full of rage, climb over the rail. Viavicencio ordered his first mate and his second mate and the three officers in charge of the silver, the Vador, the Provador, and the Silvermaster, along with all of the women of rank on board the ship and a few other top-ranking officers, he ordered them to gather up all the supplies they could carry and head out to the longboat. Everyone else on board, the pilot, the petty officers, the crew, and the passengers who did not have a lot of money or influence back in Spain, well, he told them they were on their own. And then he left. He followed the others out to the longboat, and they rowed away. Now that puts us in a difficult spot here. We know what happened to the notables on that longboat. More or less, we know what they told us, at least. There is mention in their recollection of spotting a unicorn on the coast of a small island. An island that, as it happened, had fresh water and crabs, which may have saved their life. So we can't believe everything they say. However, on their twelfth day out from the Concepcion, they saw Hispaniola and safety. They reached the shore and marched inland for several hours, but eventually they ran into a small Spanish farm boy, who, upon realizing that they were in fact people of note, gave them his hat and led them to civilization and eventually to home. Of the rest of the crew, though, Relatively little is known. There were six surviving rafts for all 300 surviving passengers and crewmen. That's just not enough for everyone. Of course, they could, after the captain left, have built more rafts, and maybe they did. But in the end, only four of them found their way to Santo Domingo, carrying 112 passengers. Now, we could speculate on the fate of the rest. Maybe... They swam to shore and found themselves a nice little village of Bahamanian natives to take them in. Of course, there were no natives in the Bahamas, but you can go ahead and believe that if you want to. I won't stop you, and if you do want to do so, you should stop listening now. Because the skeletons that were later found near the wreck tell us a different story. We can't say for certain that they definitely belonged to the Spanish, not for all of them. But some of them, some of those skeletons, did show signs of having been eaten. You know, fish and sharks and the like certainly had their cut. Yeah, that's what it was. Except for those whose skeletons showed signs of butchery with hand tools. Back in Santo Domingo, the authorities there wrote to Spain. La Casa de Contrition was curious as to exactly how this small group of grandees had made it out alive, while so many others were left behind. The king officially accused Villavicencio of dishonorable conduct. That story, the story of their prosecutions and the investigations, is interesting, but we're not going to dig into it. What I will say is this. The Navy did prepare to embark on a rescue mission, it was being outfitted in Santo Domingo. 
They were going to try to rescue the people if they were still alive, and of course, the silver. But as they were preparing that fleet, the world showed them that they weren't going to be given the opportunity. At that moment, England was falling apart. Germany was on fire. Spain and France were engaged in a long-running naval duel all across the world. And right then, as they were gathering up this fleet, the West Indies really began to heat up. They tried to get out there several times, but every time either inclement weather or an enemy fleet appeared and pushed them away. Weeks dragged into months that dragged into years. The English wound up taking Jamaica. The Dutch forces officially took the Bahamas. The Spanish didn't have the foothold they once had in the West Indies. Still, they did try to get back there and reclaim that 1.5 million pesos a few times, but they were all in vain. And all the while, while the world moved on, while Henry Morgan was sacking Panama, this abandoned hulk of La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción degraded. Her wood weakened, she sank further into the coral. And the myth of this fortune in Spanish pieces of eight grew. Treasure hunters began to hear rumors of this long-lost ship and search for it. Some of them, we know now, did actually come pretty close, but for a long, long time, nobody managed to find her. In fact, it turned into such a little cottage industry that Nassau became something of a haven for the less honorable sort there in the West Indies. This state of affairs continued on for a half century, for fifty years after the date of that terrible storm, until, at long, long last, a ship's shadow fell on the wreck of the Concepcion. That ship is one that we've met before, none other than an old Barbary Corsair vessel out of Morocco, the Sally Rose. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life, all of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Come now to
captain has died Let him live on in legend tonight